Jesus loves his church. I think about in Matthew 18 when Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And there at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit of God comes in Acts chapter 2, there those 120, uh, they are baptized by the Spirit of God, and our world has not been the same since. All the way up until this day, we see the vibrant, growing body of believers known as uh, the church. In the Bible, in the New Testament, whenever Jesus came, he said, Behold, the kingdom of God has come. And those who follow Christ, they automatically become a part of this macro, larger dimension called the kingdom of God, the universal church, if you will. But also in the New Testament, it was unthinkable if a person came to faith in Jesus Christ and they followed him in believer's baptism, it was unthinkable for that person not to immediately assimilate in with a group of people in a local assembly, a local ecclesia, or a church. And so here we are today, and I'm, I was just thinking about that fact just this morning, how the church in its very nascent embryonic state starts there around A.D. 30, and now here we are, A.D. 2014, and the church of Jesus Christ is alive, and it is well. And in some parts of the country, it is like a mighty conflagration. It is just sweeping across nations and tribes. In America, I'm praying that that will happen again, that our Almighty God would send us the, the awakenings that we read about in the past and there would be a supernatural work of God that would flood American churches, and we too would experience what many of our brothers and sisters are experiencing in China, in India, in Africa, and other places around the globe. If you have your Bibles, I really want to invite you to, to, to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 as we study this church called the church at Ephesus, which has its birth in Acts 18, and now Jesus in Revelation chapter 2, he tells John, the beloved apostle, he says, John, I want you to write these words and address them to the church that meets in the city of Ephesus. Today we're going to begin a series of studies. It's probably going to take us eight to ten weeks, and we're going to study the seven churches uh, at Asia Minor. You say, well, Brother Dan, that math does not add up. How are you going to take ten weeks and there are only seven churches? Have you heard me preach lately? I mean, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to get everything in. In fact, today... I had a choice. My notes went to 10 pages. Now, that was for one sermon. And whenever my notes go to five pages, that's about 45, 50 minutes. So you can do the math, right? And so we're going to have to do two sermons, or else the people in the worship care are going to have my hide. I'm telling you, they're going to be going, what in the world? I've been watching these children now for two hours, Brother Danny. you got to help us. Speaking of that, let me, let me just say a, a word about our worship care ministry. As a pastor, I can't tell you how grateful I am that those of you who volunteer to serve in our worship care, it is absolutely critical to the success of our church. There is no way we could have church as we know it if babies were crying and one-year-olds and two-year-olds and three-year-olds were running around the sanctuary. And so if, if you're not involved in that ministry, let me take a moment just to encourage you. Please, please, please sign up, help out. You can sign up probably for about once every couple of months, and it helps me. I thank you from the bottom of my heart if you will watch over our children as we have this collective time of worship together. So here we are. Amen. They're clapping up here. Amen. We appreciate that. We're very grateful for you to do that. So we're going to read uh, Revelation chapter 2, 
I'm so excited. I'm just so excited to be able to preach this message on the loveless church as Jesus addresses them there in the city of Ephesus. He says to the angel, to the angelos, the messenger of the church of Ephesus, write, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who holds or who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And Jesus in verse 2 says, Church at Ephesus, I know, I know your works, and I know your kapos, your labor, and I know your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be liars. And you, church at Ephesus, you have persevered, and you have had patience, and you have labored for my name's sake, and you have not become weary. And those are words, by the way, of commendation, words of accolade. This is Jesus complimenting His church there at Ephesus. And then, as the Lord of the church, in verse 4, He says, nevertheless, or however, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You have become loveless. You have left your first priority. You have left me, basically, Jesus is saying, in all of your activity in serving me, you have forgotten the importance of being intimate and worshiping me. And then he says in verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, turn away, and do the first works. Or else, Jesus says, I will come to you quickly, and I will remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And then in verse 6, he compliments them again, gives them another word of accolade, another word of commendation. In verse 6, when he says, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, some of you are like, like, well, Jesus doesn't hate anything, does he? He doesn't hate anybody. I mean, come on now, what, what is this? What is he talking about? And next week, I'm going to explain to you in detail just who these Nicolaitan people are. But Jesus said, I hate their deeds also. And then in verse 7, he says, he who has an ear, let him acueo, acoustics, where we get the English word acoustics, let him hear, let him listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All seven of these churches have somewhat of a familiar or similar template or outline. Jesus will normally begin with a word of address. He will say, for example, to the church at Smyrna, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Thyatira. So he addresses this particular address or this letter to the church at Ephesus. Number two, he will give an attribute of himself. He will give an attribute or a characteristic of the speaker. For example, here in our text, he describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he is the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And by the way, each time that Jesus gives this self-identification, he is actually reiterating something that he already described in chapter 1. And you'll pick up on that. It's very fascinating. Chapter 1 was so critical, so foundational, because in chapters 2 and 3, he will allude back to the way he described himself. Next, he will, he will give a word of knowledge. He will say, I oika. And oika, by the way, in the Greek, it means to have a full and absolute, complete understanding of what is going on. 
uh, Jesus says, I oida you, I know you. And then he gives words of commendation. It's really interesting. When you study these two chapters in Revelation and these seven churches, Jesus gives words of compliment, accolade, and commendation for everybody except one. And we'll notice that one church that Jesus does not have anything positive to say. And then he'll give a promise to the overcomer. He makes a promise to the one who overcomes, for example, in our text, to him who overcomes, Nikeo, Nike is where we get the, Philip Knight got the whole word Nike from this one Greek word, Nikos, or Nikeo, which means to overcome. He says, I will give to the eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And then, uh, and by the way, it's the same template, same outline, just about for all seven churches. Jesus will give a word of rebuke, and then finally, he will give a word of challenge. And he will challenge them to overcome. He will challenge them to persevere. And this is fascinating to me. And whenever he challenges them toward the end of his letter to them, it always corresponds or goes back to Revelation 19 through 22. And so it's fascinating to me that Jesus starts something and he repeats it, and then he repeats it again uh, toward the end of the apocalypse, toward the end of the book. So today we get the privilege of studying this, these seven verses. Well, really we're not going to make all the seven verses, obviously, but we get to study what Jesus Christ has to say to one of his local assemblies, the church there at Ephesus. I got so intrigued with this a number of years ago, I actually wrote a book called Jesus and the Church, and I guess it's good news, I'm just about out. I've, I've sold about all the copies of the book, and I'm actually looking into uh, reprinting this book called Jesus and the Church, because I get to write on two things that I'm very passionate about, Jesus, Christology, and the church, ecclesiology. And so today, we get to study what Christ says to the church there at Ephesus, and, and we get to apply, and we get to see how what he said to them then has much application to our local assemblies and our churches uh, today. So let's begin with a word of identification. In this text, you're going to notice that Jesus will identify uh, three key people or three key places. Number one, he will identify himself. Number two, he will identify the actual city in which he is addressing. And then thirdly, he will identify the church or give some characteristics of the church that is located uh, in that city. So he says to the church there at Ephesus, write to the angel, write to the angelos. Now last week we noticed that the messenger or the angelos, it's very very good possibility that he is talking about the local pastor or the lead shepherd, the under-shepherd of that local assembly. Now, now think about it like this. John is receiving the 22 chapters of Revelation, and he's writing it down. And in my mind's eye, what he's doing is he's taking this scroll, he's taking this, um, this letter, and he gives it off, and they transport it to the first church there at Ephesus. And what I think happens is... The pastor stands up and he reads the letter to the church and they copy it down and they pass it on to the next church. So you have these multiple copies now of the book of Revelation. So he says, write to the church there at Ephesus. Now, you're talking about a church. Let's take just a few minutes and describe the church at Ephesus. Well, first of all, the Apostle Paul founded the church in around A.D. 50. I don't know if you noticed the, uh, the video that you watched just a minute ago. There was a lot of information in that video. There was a lot of very good historical information. Thank you, Brother Terry, for finding that. That was excellent. 
He says, to the church at Ephesus. It was founded by the Apostle Paul around A.D. 52. Here are some of the founding members of the church at Ephesus. You had Aquila, Priscilla, and the great golden-tongued preacher, Apollos, who preached there at the church. And then the Apostle Paul comes back around to this church, and he plants his life there for three solid years. You could read this in Acts 18 and 19. The Apostle Paul preaches three years, more than any other city in all the cities of Asia Minor. And he really establishes a beachhead for the gospel, a bastion of truth, if you will, in the midst of a very immoral city. And so, who was the first pastor? Well, I guess you could say it's the Apostle Paul. Who was the next pastor of the church at Ephesus? It was none other than a man by the name of Timothy. Timothy served as the next church pastor. And then finally, the Apostle John served as the pastor of the church at Ephesus for 30 years, from about A.D. 66 till the time he was arrested and exiled over to Patmos. And so Paul started the church, Timothy pastored the church, the Apostle John pastored the church. I'm telling you, this is a powerful, illustrious, conspicuous church there in Asia Minor. And so the first letter goes to this very prominent church there at Ephesus, and by the way, as you know, around A.D. 60 or 62, when the Apostle Paul is in Rome, and he's incarcerated there in Rome, not in a horrible situation, Roman prison, but he is there in Rome, and he writes these words to the church there at Ephesus, and we call it the book of, anybody? The book of Ephesians. So that's a little bit of information about Ephesus. About 10 years ago, I visited Ephesus and it was a, a, an amazing experience. Ephesus, by the way, is one of the most preserved cities in all of antiquity. And you can see the, the, the it, is, it is absolutely amazing when you go there and how they have preserved these columns. And in fact, I went into the very theater of Acts chapter 19. They're, the 25,000 seat theater is still preserved there in Turkey in ancient Ephesus. And I went into that theater, and I closed my eyes, and I could just imagine in my mind's eye, in Acts chapter 19, this place was full of the worshipers of Artemis, Diana. And they were, they were bloodthirsty. They were wanting Paul to come out and try to defend himself so he would kill them, so they could kill him. And, his, and, and, the, apostles, and the church, they said, no, Paul, you don't need to go out there in that theater because they're going to, they're going to kill you. If you go. And so there it is still. It's there to this day the theater of Ephesus. So that's just a little bit of background of what is going on there in Ephesus. It's also the largest city in Asia Minor, the third largest city in antiquity at this time. It boasts a population between somewhere between 250 and 500,000 people. They hosted athletic events that rivaled the Greek Olympic Games. But here's something that's extremely important. If you're going to appreciate what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, you've got to understand their, Germans call it the Sitzenleben. What was their situation in life? Where, where exactly had God positioned them? Well, I would say it's a combination of Bourbon Street and the sexual Amsterdam red light district. That's the best way that I can describe the city of Ephesus where this church was planted. You see... There was a goddess there, and her name in Greek was Artemis, and her Roman name was Diana. 
She was the daughter of Zeus in mythology, and she was believed to have descended in this idol, descended and fallen down out of the heavens. And the people then in Ephesus, just like a multitude of people in India, for example, today, they worship this idol. I mean, they fell down, bowed down, and worshiped this idol that was deeply tied into sexual immorality. In fact, one, one author describes the worship of Artemis in the city of Ephesus, and it goes like this. The worship of Artemis was unspeakably vile. Her idol was a multi-breasted, a many-breasted monstrosity popularly to believe to have fallen from the heavens. The temple ground was attended with priests, slaves, priestesses who were little more than ritual prostitutes. And they played a major role in the worship of Artemis. The temple grounds were a chaotic cacophony of priests and prostitutes and bankers and criminals and musicians and dancers and frenzied, hysterical worshipers. It was popular back then. You go worship Artemis and you have sex with a prostitute and in your sexual experience you begin to worship this great goddess who has fallen out of the heavens. And by the way, 99.99% of the inhabitants of Ephesus, they all worshiped that goddess. And it's in that city that God says, I want you to plant your life, Paul. I want you to plant your life, Timothy. I want you to plant your life, John, because in that city, I want to do a magnificent work of grace and see a host of these immoral idolaters come to me and worship me. And so that's what happens. They go and they establish a beachhead for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The philosopher Heraclitus said, a man with a modicum of morality and ethics. When he goes to Ephesus, he weeps. He weeps uncontrollably because of the vile situation in the city. So Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the stars, and he is the one who walks in the midst of the churches, unlike in 113 where it says he stands in the midst of the churches. And that really impressed me. Not only did Jesus create Great Hills Baptist Church, but Jesus is in this church right now. The king is here. He knows everything going on in here. He knows the very thoughts you've been thinking for the last 20 minutes of this sermon. He knows everything you're thinking. He's walking up and down these aisles by the power of His Spirit. When the Bible says Jesus holds us, pastors, in His hand, and simultaneously He walks in our midst, He means it. Jesus loves the church. Listen, He died for the sins of the world, but He saves His church, and He manifests His presence and His power and His glory in the midst of His church. So here he is identifying himself as the king of the church. He's identified, or we've identified, the city in which uh, this church was located. I'm telling you, you're talking about a difficult place to pastor a church. You're talking about a difficult assignment that God gave those apostles. It would be this church or this city of, of Ephesus. You know, I was thinking about how the Lord... Hey, He's so amazing, and, 
And he raises up churches to be these lights, these salt and light in the midst of, of, of difficulty and immorality. And, and I know South by Southwest, that, that's all coming if it's not already come. I don't really, sorry if I don't keep up with that as much maybe as I should. Maybe we ought to take a group of us, just go down there and share the gospel with a lot of those people. But, you know, I, I think about God has raised us up here in this city for such a time as this to be a light, to be a beacon of hope and a, and a radiant church that, that effusively just radiates the love and the compassion of Christ. But you know, in my study of churchianity, if you will, a church oftentimes makes one of two errors. First of all, they, they become so frightened of the culture that they, they run back away from the culture and they form a monastic kind of Christianity, a reclusive iconoclastic Christianity that insulates itself. It's very insular, that's very protected, and there's this huge bubble, and there's that contaminated world out there, and we don't want to do anything out there in that world because it might contaminate us, and so we just stay within our holy cluster. And then on the other hand, you've got groups that, man, they hate the culture, and every opportunity they get, they condemn, and they rebuke, and they're angry, and and, and I think both of those are equally fallacious. I believe what God would have us do and what He would have every church do is to stand about right here uh, in the middle. And what He would have us do would be not be reclusive and stay hidden and not be mean-spirited and beat them up every opportunity we get, but be real. I mean, be, be Christ and, and be love. And let me, let me give you this word. And have a convictional kindness about us, that we, we believe what we believe, but we share it in such a way that it is kind and simultaneously a confrontational. And I'm going to make a bold statement. I really believe in the 21st century there's only really one church that's going to survive. And by the way, churches are dying at an amazing rapid pace. I'm going to tell you in a moment about a Presbyterian denomination that is losing 60,000 people every year, and they will eventually dry up and die. There's really only one kind of church that's going to make it. It's going to be like this church in Ephesus. They're going to have to be there. They're going to have to be strong. And they're also going to have to stay close to Jesus and preach the truth in love. Secondly is a word of commendation. Now, Jesus begins to commend this church. And you're going to think after I give you all these words of commendation, man, that's a perfect church. There's nothing wrong with that church. But there are many things wrong with it. And we're going to look at this next week as Jesus isolates those. For number one, he says, I know, oida. I know your works. And A there, if you have your, your outline, you can put the word works. And this really refers to the, the congregation's good deeds. It is, a, it is a word that is an encompassing words, word. It, it's a word that describes in macro all the amazing good deeds that the church of Ephesus was involved in. Second is the word kapos or the word labor. Now, now, this word, it's an interesting word. It means, it means to labor to the point of being exhausted and to perspire. And in this church at Ephesus, guys, they were strong. They were laboring in the midst of a very difficult place. 
And, and they were serving Jesus, and they were representing Jesus, and they were out in the midst of their city, and, and maybe many of them were going out to the temple, and they were sharing the gospel, and, and maybe many of them in, in their homes, they were evangelizing, and they were baptizing, and, and they were seeing the gospel move through this city. But I'm telling you, every inch that they took, it took a Herculean effort to gain just an inch in such a difficult city, and Jesus took notice of it, and he says, I commend you for your labor. Number three, he said, I commend you for your perseverance. And they labored inwardly, and they labored outwardly. They courageously accepted their difficult status, and they remained faithful to the Lord. I mean, their trials, in their vicissitudes, their hardships were from without, because they were in such a difficult city, but they were also from within. Uh, they had people in their church who were causing a lot of difficulty. And I'm telling you, when I start talking to you all next week about these Nicolaitans, you're going to go, wow, I hope those people are dead. I hope those people aren't alive anymore because they were a vicious group of sexually immoral people sprinkled throughout the church trying to seduce as many people as they could within the local church. And so, I don't know when I'm supposed to say this, but let me go ahead. If y'all have that verse where Paul talks about in Acts chapter 20, let me, let me put this on the screen. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul is, is leaving them in the city of Miletus, he brings the elders, the pastors there, the leadership of the church at, at Ephesus, and he says, take heed to yourselves. Now, this is, this is Ephesus he's talking to. I know it's Acts. And he says, and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Paul says, for I know this. God gave him a word of knowledge. He said, I know this. I know this is just A.D. mid-50s, whatever, but I know there's coming a time that after my departure, savage wolves, you could put in there parentheses, Nicolaitans, savage wolves are going to come in among you, O church at Ephesus, and they are not going to spare the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up. They will speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And Paul's looking, look at it, he's saying, I'm warning you, therefore, remember that for three years, remember longer than any other place he had been, I did not cease to warn you, every one of you, night and day with tears. And so they were a persevering church. They had to because they were in such a difficult place. But next, dare I say the word. Oh, my word. Some of y'all going to gasp. Some of y'all might just, oh, there it is. Oh, do y'all see this? Is it, is it up on the screen? What, what does it say? Oh, my word. Did you, did you say that word? Intolerance. Guess what? There are times when the church of Jesus Christ needs to be intolerant, okay? This church was intolerant of certain behavior within the walls of that church. It says in verse 2, notice this, you cannot bear those who are evil. And the word evil there in other contexts means a cowardly soldier or a lazy student. And by the way, both of those are not good. If you're a soldier, you should not be lazy. And if you're a, st a student, you, I mean a, a, a coward, and if you're a student, you should not be lazy. But in this context, they are evil. They have evil deeds. And they, the church at Ephesus, were intolerant of what these people practiced and what they believed. A few years ago, I was watching television. There was a debate on 
And it's very fascinating that the one statement that was made, a lady made a statement to a congressman that she was in a debate with. And this has been a number of years ago, but this is so true and it's so powerful. And this is what she said. She said, sir, morality must not be equated with bigotry. Y'all got to put that in your minds for just a minute and think about that. Morality should not be equated with bigotry. Now, for us, like the church at Ephesus, to stand for certain basic moral truths. By the way, guys, they stood. They stood for what was right in, in a milieu, in a time that was inundated with immorality and inundated with a possibility, a very distinct possibility of persecution. And I've written an example here in my notes. If, if we do not evolve in our views on some things like marriage, like our president, the president of the United States of America, don't tell me he's not influential. He said, I have evolved in my view of marriage. Homosexual marriages are okay. And since then, I don't know if you've noticed it, there's been an avalanche of popularity and encouragement toward homosexual marriages because the leader of the known world has come out and said, I know what the Bible says, but the Bible is mistaken. I have evolved, and marriage between two men is okay, and marriage between two women are okay. Now, listen to me carefully. If we stand up and say that is wrong, then we better get ready for the fight because we are going to be racist. We're going to be social racist, closed-minded, cruel, intolerant, and worthy to be punished. That, my friends, is the United States of America, and that is the mess we are in, especially under the current president. That is the mess that the United States is in. You say, be careful, Brother Danny. You, got, you, can't, you can't stay say stuff like that. Yes, I can. I mean, I can say stuff like that. I think our problem, the reason we're in a mess that we're in, preacher, is because most of us don't say stuff like that anymore. Most of the pulpits are benign and neutered, and they don't say anything except how to get along with your successful life. And where are the men of God who are going to have to stand? I'm telling you, you could not have found a guy that was less political than, than me. And, and God brought me to Great Hills Baptist Church, and I'm like, I'm not a very political person. But listen, you live in the city, you're going to have to take a stand, and you're going to have to be counted for Christ. And I want to I try to do that. I want to be counted for the Lord. So here's the next thing they involve themselves in, and that was church discipline. Oh, my heavens. Surely not. The church engaged in a lost art of church discipline. You say, how do you know that? Well, it says you cannot bear with these people, and you tested these people. Do you see that in verse 2? The church at Ephesus had a method whereby they tested people who said one thing, but on the other hand, they were committing these egregious sins, and when they tested them, they found them to be wanting. I'm telling you, church discipline is not an easy exercise. And when you engage in church discipline like the church at Ephesus did, it is taxing, it is demanding, and it is difficult. And Jesus commends them. He says, you guys, you're doing it, and I commend you for it, and I appreciate what you're doing. You're trying to keep the church holy. You're trying to keep the church righteous, and I commend you for it. And we do it at Great Hills. I hate it. I hate disciplined church members. 
I mean, just this week, man, I have been ripped up and down by this guy. He, I think he found out we were going about to discipline him. And man, you'd think I was the Antichrist. And you say, well, welcome to pastoring in the 21st century. Yes, if you want to step out there and do what God would have you to do, it's going to be extremely costly to do it. Now, John MacArthur, he pastors a church out in California, and he says, you know, you've heard of the purpose-driven church, and we are the theology-driven church, and the reason God has blessed us so in our church is because of church discipline. You say, well, I bet they run about 80. I bet they're a struggling band of little folks out there in California. They run about 8,000. And he said, and it's just part of the DNA of the church. And when you join Great Hills Baptist Church, we ask you to, no, we don't ask you, we mandate that you go through the new members class because we want to know, want you to know what you're getting into. And when you commit egregious sins against your wife or against the, your family or against us, then we come to you and eventually we will bring you before the congregation and we will excommunicate you, we will discipline you. And I want to tell you something, it's hard. And you know why most churches don't do it? It's the same reason most parents don't do it. It's too hard. It's costly. You say, Brother Dan, I'll tell you what, you keep that up, we're gonna, we're, our church is going to be running a whopping 200 when it's all said and done. I'd rather be in a church of 200 that obeys God's Word than 2,000 that never obey God's Word. <clears throat> Number five, he said, I want to commend you again for your perseverance and for your patience. Hupomenon, you, you, you bear up under it. And ebastasas, you, you, you're strong and you won't capitulate. You won't acquiesce into the pressure. And Jesus says in verse 3, I am commending you for uh, doing this. There is this church that I just read about this week, and I've become fascinated with the story. And I want to share this story with you because in many ways, this church exemplifies the church at Ephesus, at least all of her good points. This, this Presbyterian church of the United States of America, it is, it is in a massive decline. And there are churches all over America who are voting as we speak whether to stay in the denomination or to get out of the denomination. I don't know if you noticed the Presbyterian, the big Presbyterian church in Houston. They'd had the vote and they barely missed the vote. I mean, they voted, thousands of them voted, but they didn't have enough majority. And so that for now, they are staying within this denomination. John Ortberg is the pastor of the Menlo Presbyterian Church out in California, and they run about 5,000. They're one of the largest churches in the Presbyterian denomination, and he is leading, he led their church, he's leading them to vote out of their denomination and join this denomination, a covenant order of evangelical uh, Presbyterians. It's a fascinating story. Condoleezza Rice is a member of this church, and th can you imagine the can you imagine the, the, the persecution and the difficulty this pastor is facing? Because he said, we have doctrinal issues, we have ethical issues, and we have governmental issues within our church. Doctrinal issues is this. Most of the pastors or many of the pastors in that denomination no longer believe that Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. They don't believe that he died on a cross and arose from the dead and that he's the only way to God. That's what the pastors, many of them, are teaching. And John Ortberg says, I can't affiliate, I can't associate with that. 2010, they lifted the ban off of lesbian and gay uh, clergy. All right, and so they said, let the lesbian and let the gays, let them, let them live like they want to live and let them, let them be pastors in our church. John Ortberg says, I can't do that. And then they said, well, you cannot 
multi-site your church because we own all the buildings and we're going to tell you what you can and what you cannot do. And then he said, well, wait a minute. You mean to tell me I can't lead my church like I feel like God's leading me? They said you can. It's going to cost you $9 million. And they voted to do it. I tell you guys, that's, that's praiseworthy. They, they're going to, I don't know where they're going to get $9 million, but they're saying we would rather pay $9 million and, and be obedient to our conscience than stay within a, a denomination that is dying by the thousands every day. And did you know that the Southern Baptist Convention was right where they are just a few years ago? And were it not for some men of God who took a strong stand like this man sitting up here on the front row and like Paige Patterson and some other guys, had they not done that, then we would have been adrift into theological liberalism just like the other denominations are. But this church, Menlo Presbyterian, God bless them. They're much like the church at Ephesus. They persevered. They had patience. And number six, or G, they tirelessly labored for the Lord. They, they were inexorable. They were relentless in their labor. One translation reads, You have borne up, though you cannot bear evil men. And in spite of your toil, you have not grown weary. So you say, man, what a model church. I mean, that church is amazing. But oh, conjunction, junction, here comes your function. In verse, verse 6, he says, nevertheless, or however, I have these things against you. And next week, I want to pick it up right there, and I want to show you where they began to lose their first love for Christ. Stay with me. They were so busy defending Jesus, they forgot that you need to love Jesus. This is going to be a good word for us next week, and I hope you'll come back. And so, uh, that's Loveless Church A, point one. Some of you say, well, Brother Dan, why didn't you just preach the whole sermon and leave out all that history and leave out all that etymology? What do you think this is, a teaching situation? Yes, I do. That's exactly what I think church ought to be. It ought to be a time of worshiping God with, with our minds. And so... Maybe you're here today and you'd say, man, I, I, I tell you, I, I want to be a part of a church like that. I don't know if it's coincidence, but I've never had this many people leave a church in the middle of a sermon, Mike. It was interesting. When I was talking about what I was talking about a minute ago, I was watching people get up and exit the building. And I don't know what that's about, and maybe they can tell me later that their child was having difficulty or whatever. But I, I, I tell you, it could be. That when you stand for things like this, you, you, may, you may lose some people. But I believe God will have an affinity down, and he will draw the people that he wants to be here. Maybe that's you. Maybe you want to be a part of Great Hills Baptist Church. And if you do, God bless you. We want you to be. We want you to come. We want you to pray with us. We want you to give. We want you to serve. We want you to join arms with us as we try to make a dent or poke holes in the darkness of our culture. Or maybe you're here today and you don't have a relationship with the Lord. There's never been a time in your life where you surrendered your will to the will of Christ and you repented of your sins and you, by faith, you, you trusted in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. If you've never done that, I invite you to do that today. I mean, when Jesus Christ becomes real to you and he comes into your life, I mean, everything will begin to change. Now, you're not going to change overnight. But your life will have a definitive change about you. Your behavior will change. Your language will change. Your morals will change. Your ethics will change because Jesus Christ will begin to live his amazing life in you and through you. 
So, Father, I pray today for those that are listening to the message and drawing them, Jesus, as you're drawing them to a point and a place of decision. I pray, first of all, God, for those that don't know you, that don't have a relationship with you, that are separated from you. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. And thank you, God, that in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to redeem us, to reconcile us back to himself. So, Lord, we just pray even at this moment that you would redeem, that you would reconcile, that you would justify, that you would, God, save those who are outside of Christ, and they would be gloriously born again. I also pray, Lord, for those that are looking for a church home, those that want to be a part of a church that really is going to try to find this balance of being prophetic, but also being compassionate and trying to speak the truth in love and trying, Lord, to reach a city that so desperately needs the truth of the gospel. So, Lord, we pray now that during our time of invitation that, God, you would bless, you would draw people into yourself. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Would you stand and we'll have our invitation.